Welcome to In Parallel, an offshoot of the OnScript podcast, in which we explore the connections between biblical and contemporary poetry. I'm your host, Brent Strawn. I'm a biblical scholar and theologian. I teach at Duke University, where I am professor of Old Testament and professor of law. In an earlier episode, I shared the opinion that metaphor, a trope of comparison, was the very essence of poetry. Not all would agree, of course. Indeed, insofar as metaphor is just one specific instance of figurative language, someone might easily counter that earlier judgment with another opinion that seems equally justified. Namely, that it is figurative language writ large, but especially figurative language occurring in close quarters with unmistakable density that is the very essence of poetry. That, at least, is the considered opinion of several biblical scholars. It was also the opinion of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, who once defined poetry more generally as the best words in the best order. Unfortunately, the best words in the best order does not automatically translate into the best words most easily understood. In fact, many people find poetry the precise opposite of that, difficult to understand, opaque, if not downright abstruse. As a result, rather than soaking in poetry, luxuriating in it, many people treat it as if it were an enemy of the state, according to Billy Collins' wonderful poem, Introduction to Poetry. In that poem, instead of patiently lingering with the best, though difficult, words of poetry, Collins describes his poetry students as ruthlessly obsessed with matters of authorship and origin. They end up tying the poem to a chair. Then they beat it with a hose, Collins reports, trying to torture a confession out of it. Tell us, O poem, what you really mean. Figurative language, the best words in the best order, poetry that is not easy to understand and that may be not much interested in authorship or origin, all of that and more is on display in the biblical poem for this episode, Psalm 82, which I'm calling a somewhat confusing poem about God and justice. Here's the poem, according to the New Revised Standard Version. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I say, you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, you shall die like mortals and fall like any prince. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. This brief poem is confusing right out of the gate. What's this business about God taking a place in the divine council? What's a divine council? 
The next line only adds to the confusion. God holds judgment in the midst of the gods, it says. Wait, what? Readers of the Bible, casual or otherwise, are accustomed to think of God as the only God. You know, monotheism and all that jazz. But this poem would seem to imagine things otherwise. The confusion is even worse in Hebrew, where the words used for God and gods happen to be identical. In both cases, the Hebrew term is Elohim. Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of Elohim, he, the first Elohim, holds judgment. Hmm? Come again? It seems we could use some clarification. Yes, Psalm 82 is not a little bit confusing about God. This confusion may be by design, of course. Poetry professor Mary Kinsey has noted that poets can write anything they want in any way they want, and so what they choose to write and how they end up putting things down is likely meaningful, not just simply artful. The great Russian linguist Roman Jakobson spoke of the poetic function, which may be defined as the way poetry draws attention to itself by means of its careful use of unusual diction. And it is the poet and farmer Wendell Berry who has stated that a great poem can neither be written nor read in distraction. Part of why poetry is hard to read, or at least why it can't and mustn't be read quickly, is because of this poetic function. Now that doesn't mean that poetry does not reveal its secrets unless you torture it, though, of course, some poems are more torturous than others. It simply means that poetry takes the long road home, even as it takes that longer route with very few but very precious words. Seen in this way, Psalm 82's somewhat confusing presentation of God, namely that this Elohim is a member of a heavenly group populated by other Elohim, forces us to slow down and wonder what is going on. What is this poem about? Well, it's about Elohim for one thing. Or perhaps better, it's about Elohim-ness, God-ness, deity-ness, divinity. What is the difference, the poem asks, between the one God who judges and the many gods, plural, who end up being judged? Elohim has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the Elohim, Elohim judges. Hmm. Confusing. The judging, being judged distinction, though, is one important difference between these two types of deities. But Psalm 82 goes on to signal another major dissimilarity between the one true Elohim and the many soon-to-be-mortal Elohim. That dissimilarity has to do with justice, or rather, the lack thereof. To this end, Psalm 82 deploys an intriguing, if somewhat vexed, image. It's a courtroom, but not the kind with which we are most familiar. This is a heavenly courtroom and is explicitly called the Divine Council. This Divine Council image figures the supernatural realm as a collection of deities, a pantheon, with a high god who heads a group of lesser godlings. The notion was widespread throughout the ancient Near East, and so, not surprisingly, it has left traces in the Old Testament, too. It's found, for instance, in the beginning of Job and in 1 Kings 22. It may even lie behind the plural we language used by God in the opening chapters of Genesis, the we that God is addressing in statements like, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness, may be other, lesser members of a larger divine bureaucracy. 
Now let the reader beware. Images can be powerful. They can colonize the mind, or at least a poem, or the mind of someone reading a poem, at least for the duration of the reading. But let the reader also enjoy. All poetry uses imagery of one sort or another, with many poems cleverly trading on one dominant image throughout. A particularly clever example is Mitch Roberson's poem, Every Day We Are Dancers, which uses dancing as its primary image. The day begins, according to Roberson, with the somewhat lewd dance called the Macarena that each of us performs in the shower. After that, we do the twist with our partner, the towel. Then follows the assortment of dances involved in getting dressed, a shimmy, perhaps, or the funky chicken. Outside, Roberson goes on, under what he calls the disco ball of the sun, no one is a wallflower because no one can escape the boogie. Movers dance as they carry heavy objects together. Even strangers in revolving doors end up in a dance of controlled passion. Who will lead and who will follow? They are so close, but never quite touching. In Roberson's poem, all of life is seen through the lens of dancing. Dancing transforms everything, everywhere. Dressing or bathing is like a dance move, as is mundane, even heavy labor. A rotating door is an invitation to dance, and the sun is nothing more than a disco ball hanging above the earth's great big dance floor. This dance image is a powerful and effective one in the poem, but of course it can be resisted. We might observe to Mr. Roberson, for instance, if we happen to bump into him on the street, accidentally, of course, but in a way strikingly similar to a move from the Paso Doble. Well, we might observe to him at that point that, in point of fact, the sun is a star, Mr. Roberson, not a disco ball. He, in turn, would likely be disappointed with our lack of imagination. Mr. Roberson, too, one suspects, attended elementary school. It's an image, he'd likely retort, perhaps adding under his breath as he walked away disgusted. It's a poem. And, well, that would be the end of that dance, wouldn't it be? same might be said of Psalm 82, a somewhat confusing poem about God and justice. This poem utilizes the image of the divine counsel, just an image, this image, to make a remarkable point that the main difference between the true God Elohim, who judges all other Elohim, those junior godlings who deserve judgment, the main difference between these two types of divinity is justice. God calls the godlings to a meeting that quickly turns into a hearing. They are found guilty and subsequently dismissed permanently. The cause for their dismissal, which ends not just in their firing, but in their very mortality, since this turns out to be a capital case, that cause is their unwillingness to judge rightly, fairly, specifically for those who need such judgment the most. As a result of this failure, the junior deities are nothing more or less than wicked powers on the wrong side of things. They forever support the powerful against the powerless. 
They represent consistently big business that tramples whatever is in its way, despotic politicians that care only for re-election and raw power, shady judges who respond only to bribery. The true Elohim, however, will have none of this. The false Elohim are judged, found wanting, removed. You will die like mortals, fall like any prince. This image of God judging other gods is a powerful one, but it's just an image. It's memorable poetry, but it remains a poem. And so, if we were somehow able to accost the poet of Psalm 82, asking them what they really thought about monotheism, we would likely be barking up the wrong tree. Are you not a monotheist, we might ask the poet, slightly offended. I mean, do you really believe that other gods exist, or once did? Tell us, before we torture a confession out of you. The psalmist, I imagine, would respond like Mr. Roberson, somewhat annoyed. Um... It's a poem, you know. It's, it's an image. In other words, the attempt to determine where exactly something like Psalm 82 fits within the history of the development of ancient Israelite religion may be an adventure in missing the point. It might end up being the equivalent of tying Psalm 82 to a chair with ropes, beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Whatever the poem means, and it likely means far more than just one thing, its meanings are connected to its imagery, its figurative language, its best words in their best order. In the case of Psalm 82, all of that has to do with justice and how justice is, in a profound and fundamental way, at the very root of godness. What determines divinity what makes any old Elohim the one and only true Elohim? In the end, then, if Psalm 82 is a somewhat confusing poem about God, it is actually quite far from confusing about justice. And that's because justice is a real issue, a real desideratum, not only up there in divine council land, but also down here on the earth, among the salt of the earth. And so it is that the poet, in the very last verse of the psalm, when crying out, Rise up, O God, judge the earth, prays the equivalent of a much, much later prayer. One that goes like this. May your kingdom come. May your just will be done here on earth, exactly as it is in heaven. That, however, is another topic. That is a poem for another time. Here again, then, is Psalm 82, this time from the Common English Bible. God takes his stand in the divine council. He gives judgment among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly by granting favor to the wicked? Give justice to the lowly and the orphan. Maintain the right of the poor and the destitute. Rescue the lowly and the needy. Deliver them from the power of the wicked. They don't know. They don't understand. They wander around in the dark. All the earth's foundations shake. 
I hereby declare you are gods, children of the Most High, all of you, but you will die like mortals. You will fall down like any prince. Rise up, God. Judge the earth because you hold all nations in your possession. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.